The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. My name is Hera. I have the... I'll pause for applause, yeah. I have the honor of reading this scripture, passage of scripture this morning. So I'd love to invite everyone to stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 to 28, first in English, then in Armenian. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb, The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And now in Armenian. Isahak Arachet Teroche Ir Genoch Hamar, Amud Lalun Bacharov, Yevdera Anor Arachanka and Tunets, Uanor Gine Rebekan Iratsav, Yevdraknera Anor Arkantin Mech Gagarvein Usav, Yete Ispese in Chuyerav in Ziasiga, Yevderocha Hartsenelukanats, Udera Sav Anor, Yergu Askan Arkantit Mech, Yevku Vorovainet Yergushovurt Bidit Hadvi, Ujorovurtin mega musen zoravor vidi ella, yev meze bidi zaraye bestigin. Uyer banor zananelu orere letsvetsan, a hayek voriagein anor arkantin mech, arachine yelav garmra queen, polor marmina mazod, verarguves yev viranuna, yesavterin. Evangayetka anor yepire yelav, uanor cerke, yesavi karshaparen pernere, yevanor anuna, hagopterin. Uanons tenants adena isahak vatsundareganer. Yev manutnera metsan, uyesav tashti mart, varbed vorsort yerav, is kagob, hantard parkov marter, uveranerumech kapanager. Yev isahak, gesirer yesava, vasensi anor vorsen kuder, paitsrebeka, hagopa gesirer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So glad you guys are here. What a great Sunday so far. Um, I, one of my favorite things that we do at this church is the reading of God's word, and I love when we get to translate it to other languages. If you're new, we try as much as we can to, to get as many languages as we can that are representative of this church, because in Revelation chapter 7, it says that all tongues, tribes, and nations worship the God of the universe, and so what a great tiny picture it is to be a part of that this morning. So thank you. Thank you. If you speak another language, we'd love to have you share that with us as you read the scripture. It's, it's pretty awesome. Well, again, welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. We want you to know that your story is welcome here. We have three values that kind of shape the way, not kind of, they shape the way that we look at everything that we do. The first is that our story is God's story. 
that all of our stories are a part of what God is doing uh, in Burbank, in the valley, in, uh, in the county, and in the world in general. And so we're learning how to tell our stories, like you just saw, where Jesus is the hero of our story, not ourselves. The second is that we are real and redeemed. That the things that we go through in life, even the worst things, God can redeem and bring good out of. And lastly, we serve the neighborhoods that we call home. This is a really important one for us, that we want to be a church that knows and loves and serves the neighborhoods around us in ways that are most beneficial to them, even if it's inconvenient to us. That is one of the deals for us. So we're glad you're here. We're glad you're a part of that. We appreciate that. One of our focuses, one of the things that's really important to us is foster care and adoption. So we want you to know that that is something that uh, you, you might hear that almost more than anything else. And that's because one of the things that we feel God has primarily tasked us to be involved in. My name is Jared Ocelier. I have the privilege of being one of your pastors here. And so welcome for those of you who don't know me. I'm excited to be with you, my family. Uh, so I do have a question for you. It goes back to that minute to mingle question. I hope that brought a little uh, smile to your face. Do your parents have a favorite child? Do your, yes, see, right away, right away. Always that same way. Who is it, Shawana? Who's your tra- parents' favorite child? My sister. Your sister. <laughs> yeah, there's always. I asked that question a couple times, and there's a couple siblings that pointed right to the other sibling immediately. It was pretty, pretty clear. Anybody else? Who, who would say you are the favorite child? Oh, there's a couple of you. Okay, that's bold. I like that. I like that. Who would say that, that uh, your other sibling is one of the greatest, one of the, uh, your child's favorite? Okay. Some of you are only children, and you're like, it's not me. So I don't know. I don't know what happens with that, but all right. Some of you asked me who is my parents' favorite child, and uh, it is hands down, without a doubt, if you ask my mom, between my brother and I, who my mom's favorite child is, she won't even hesitate. Without a doubt, it's my wife. 100%. It's not even, not even, a, it's not even a contest. Uh, it's pretty funny. Sometimes she'll call and be like, hey, mom. She's like, just, just give me your wife. That's just what I, like, okay. Uh, well, today we're going to walk right into the middle of a living room with a really dysfunctional family. I love that the Bible is so honest about it. It's just real. Like, here it is. Like, in the scripture we read today, it's like, this dude is so hairy, it's like he's got a fur coat on. And that's the most awkward line ever. Like, great job reading that and not busting out into laughter because that's like, it's just weird, but it's true, right? Like, well, Whoever wrote the story was actually not him. So I don't know. Maybe they were just one last jab uh, at him in the, in the point there. But, but the, truth, the truth is that we're going to walk right in the middle of this jacked up family. And they're trying to live in the blessings of God. And they're trying to get the blessings of God. And they're broken. They're people who couldn't be farther from the intentions of God. And yet, they're going to come to see God's plan and purpose fulfilled in their lives despite their best efforts. Now, in seeing them, we're going to see ourselves, hopefully, My goal for us today is that we will see clearly that our identity and our worth are not found in what we do, good or bad, but are found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so let's pray, and then we'll go back to Genesis chapter 25 this morning. Father, you are so good. And even when we are not faithful, even when we don't even understand who you are, when we try to use you like some sort of cosmic ATM to get the things that we want from you, where we fall in love with the things that you can give us instead of you, 
you're still faithful. It's amazing. It's hard to wrap our minds around sometimes. But your goodness, your faithfulness, your love for us is not based on our ability to please you, on our ability to be good enough, on the, the things that we do. Somehow you see past all of our junk. And you love us right where we're at. God, you're a pursuant God. You come after us when we don't deserve it, and we thank you that you have made us worthy in you, that our identity is because of who you are, not because of who we are. And so we stop this morning and we say, thank you. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. Thank you that that foundation that we sang of this morning is one that we don't have to build, but that you build us on you. As we are on that firm foundation, we thank you that we can find stability and hope and peace and joy even in the midst of the most difficult things, the broken things, the hard things. Lord, this is a difficult world to live in. But we thank you that that foundation is one of faithfulness, meaning that we won't avoid those hard things that we go through, but that we have a foundation to rely on, that we have you to be with us. And Lord, we thank you for the family you've brought us here, that we have each other. We're an imperfect family to be sure, but we thank you that this is a place where we can build friendship. We can learn to live out the things you've called us to. We can live in a way that helps us to see that the fruit of that hope, that help. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me remind you again of what Hera read this morning. Genesis 25, verses 21 to 34, it says this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. Now, uh, this isn't in this part, but it's about 20 years that she had been trying to have kids. Uh, Some of you know that struggle. But the children inside of her struggled with each other, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's very different. That's an important key to this story. We're going to come back to that. When her time came to give birth, they were in, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. I love that line. And they named him Esau, which means red or hairy. And after this, like, can you imagine if your parents gave you names like that? Like, you know, hey, how are you? What's your name? I'm Big Nose. Like, that's awkward, right? I'm super hairy. Nice to meet you. Uh, It's just, anyway, that's weird. Uh, Because his brother that comes out after him uh, is named uh, Cheater or Heel Grasper. Like, that's even, like, can you imagine? How are you? Hey, what's up, Cheater? Like, that's your nick? No, that's my name. That's what my parents name me. Uh, Verse 26, after this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There's favorites. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That's why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright.
Now, let me give you a little bit of context of what's happening because there's a lot going on in this story that doesn't make sense if we're just picking it up in the middle. First, this is Isaac, the son of Abraham. Uh, for those of you who are new to this whole Jesus thing, God made a covenant with Abraham. Any uh, Harry Potter fans in the room? Cool. I was worried. Some of you are like, "Do I? am I allowed to say that? Man, it's church. Am I, uh... Okay, so a covenant is more than a promise. It's like the unbreakable curse that Professor Snape makes, okay? This is what this is about. It's unbreakable curse, but the promise uh, isn't just unbreakable. It's actually entirely on God to fulfill the promise. So even if the person that God makes a covenant with is unfaithful on their end, God still has to follow through. That's kind of the rules of his own covenant. And so God makes this covenant promise with Abraham. And here's the promise that if Abraham leaves the way of life that he's known and he follows God in faith into the unknown, wherever God's going to lead him, that through that nation, God would make him a great nation. And through that nation, the savior, the one who would make a path for all creation to be rescued and restored and redeemed, uh, would be born through Abraham's family. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. He grows up knowing all about the covenant. He knows about this promise. He knows about the kingdom that God is going to establish and bring in through his family. He also knows how the world worked. For those of you who weren't here a couple weeks ago, I explained that in those days, the firstborn son gets one-third of all the inheritance. I'm sorry, two-thirds of all the inheritance and control over the family businesses, control over, say, in the family. The second-born son gets one-third of the inheritance, and every other brother after that gets nothing. Those brothers have to rely on the first-born son and his generosity to be employed, to, have, to be cared for, whatever else. And so uh, if you are kid 3 to 25, like, it all depends on the first-born son. And that is given by the birthright. The birthright is the person who is generally the first-born son, birthright is given control to that. So when we were talking about the family of Joseph, and he is the 11th born son, in the story of Joseph a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the father gave him that multicolored dream coat, right? When he gets that, that was a symbol that the father was going to, instead of choosing the firstborn, choose Joseph instead and give him control and two-thirds of the inheritance and all of that. Okay. Now, this is also not an individualistic society. So uh, this is like family units. Everything is together. If, uh, this is just like uh, when I rode with biker clubs. It's the same thing. If you say something, it's not you saying it. It's the entire club saying it, right? So if I get into a fight with you, I didn't just get in a fight with you. My entire club just got in a fight with your entire club, and now we're at war. It's the same thing. If this family, if one member does something, the entire family did it. If one family member says it, the entire family Remember, it says it. That is familia right there. All right, they lived and died as families. That's right. Okay, uh, so these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, they come out of the womb fighting each other. Who's going to be first? And ultimately, they spend their entire lives fighting each other. But what are they fighting for? Well, they're fighting for that blessing. Who is actually going to be the one that gets that covenant promise, that gets not only control of the family and control of the wealth, but ultimately the blessing of God on everything that they do? And so they're fighting for this blessing that was promised by God. Now, the idea was that the birthright and the blessing were separate, but whoever controlled the birthright, again, by right, controlled the blessing. So Jacob thinks he has this under control when he suckers Esau into giving up the birthright for some stew, but it's not quite that simple. Uh, and so before we can kind of understand this, the stew part, we have to get a little bit more of this family dynamic. Take a look at verse 23 again with me. And this is Rebecca. The Lord says to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, God had promised the younger one would be the child that God's going to continue this covenant with. And, uh, and so what's the problem? Well, the problem is, in verse 28, that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have a problem. You have this uh, promise that God is going to give the blessing to the younger son, and yet the dad's like, ah, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Now, we be honest with each other for a minute? Is that okay? You guys good with that? Okay, because sometimes you guys are like, I don't know. All of us in parenting have expectations for our kids. We do. Even, of the, even those, uh, and it's, it's not just expectations of what they'll do, but it's who they'll be. Even those of you who don't have kids yet, uh, but maybe you want them, you have expectations for your kids already. It's there. Those of you who don't have kids or don't want kids, you still definitely have expectations for other people's kids, but that's another sermon. Now, we may not all want to live vicariously through our kids, right? But we certainly have things that we even unknowingly want them to become. So what happens when you're an athlete dad and you have a mathlete kid? What happens if you're a musician and your kids can't hold a tune? It can feel like your child has failed you over and over and over again. And, and when they don't become what we want them to be, whether we realize it or not, we're holding these expectations over them. And when we hold these expectations over them, it's like every time we see and speak to them, they're failing us again. And whether we realize it or not, that is there in our conversations. Now, why do we have expectations for our kids at all? And I, I really do think it stems from love. We want our kids to have a better life than us. We want our kids to not have to suffer the ways that we did. We want our kids to experience things differently than we had to. We want them to be more prepared than we were to enter the world. We desperately want them to have a better life and not make the same mistakes that we made or our parents made or our grandparents before that. So what's wrong with it? Well, the problem is that it doesn't, like Isaac, consider what God has created them to be. I love the picture that author Nancy Guthrie paints. She says, when, Re- when Rebecca finally gave birth after 20 years of trying, out came first the furry, fiery, red-headed Esau whose foot was firmly in the grasp of his twin brother Jacob, whose name means heel grabber or cheater. These two boys were opposite to the extreme and mom and dad each had a favorite. And a picture of the family Christmas card photo when the boys are nine or 10. Isaac, his arm around Esau with his unkempt head of red hair, dirt behind his ears, a bow and arrow on his back, and holding the severed head of his latest conquest. Then there's Rebecca with her arm around the son she adores, Jacob, who is obviously less adventurous, perhaps more calm and calculating. Over the years, Isaac became blind physically, but perhaps even blinder spiritually. God had made it clear that Jacob the younger would be the son of promise instead of Esau, just as Isaac, the younger son of Abraham, was the son of promise instead of the older Ishmael. But that went against what Isaac wanted, and he preferred to ignore it. He hoped to overrule it, and Jacob and Rebekah, not trusting God to provide it, schemed and deceived to take it. Now, we don't know if Isaac directly knew the promise God told Rebekah or not, but it really doesn't change the fact that they have very different ideas about how to bring about God's promise for the future of the family. If you think about this for a minute, you have a dad who's like, God couldn't have wanted me to entrust the future blessing of the entire world to a kid who's not a warrior. 
He couldn't have wanted me to trust the future of this family and our family business and the survival and this blessing to the weaker kid. That wouldn't make any sense. Obviously, God gave me a kid who's going to be what a man is supposed to be for a reason. His warrior strength will be what we need to make sure this promise comes about. So Isaac clearly believes that even even though uh, God made this promise, that the promise still had to be fought for in order to bring it about. So he's trusting in his own strength and his own plan and his own will over God's because honestly, look, it makes more sense on the surface. We do the same thing in our lives. Rebecca and Jacob, on the other hand, know what God has promised. We know that Rebecca knows what God has said, that the younger will be in charge of the older. We know that she understands this because the Bible is clear about that, and yet she still doesn't trust God to bring it about either. She and her son decide that even though God made the promise, they had to fight to bring it about. And so they turn to their own scheming, their own cunning plans, and they figure out how to cheat and steal their way into this. And so Jacob, deceiver, cheats his way into his birthright to ensure he gets God's promised blessing. But that's not the end. Genesis chapter 27, excuse me, it says this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak he could not see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Look, I'm old and do not know the day of my death. So now take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow, and go out into the field to hunt some game for me. Then make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. So when, while Esau went to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Listen, I heard your father talking with your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and make a delicious meal for me to eat so that I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring me two choice young goats and I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind he loves. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother. Now listen to this response. It's not, mom, that's, that's wrong. Listen to what he says. Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, <laughs> but I'm a man with smooth skin. That's kind of a problem. Suppose father touches me, then I'll be revealed to him as a deceiver and bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. His mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son. Just obey me and go get them for me. So he went and got the goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the skins of the young goats in his hands and the smooth parts of his neck. Then she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. When he came to his father, he said, My father. And he answered, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games that you may bless me. Jacob doesn't just need the birthright to get what he wants. He also needs his father's blessing. Now, I imagine this is almost more important for a kid like Jacob. If we could put ourselves in his shoes for just a moment what would it be like knowing that you are never enough for your dad what would it be like to never measure up some of us had those parents some of us are those parents Jacob dresses up like his brother he enters his father's tent and he approaches his bed wearing goat hair and dirt smelling clothing deeply longing for his father's blessing and approval. And many of us are standing in the same place in front of the throne of God, 
We're shabbily dressed up in the very best works that we have and hoping that God will mistake us for somebody worthy of him. If you're taking notes today, this is our first observation. We are not worthy on our own. We are not worthy on our own. The reality is is that Esau would never be Jacob and Jacob would never be Esau. Think about this for the moment. Is this the family that you would choose to be in the line of Jesus the Messiah? Is this the family you would expect a savior of all the earth to come through? You would think they'd be a little bit more pious. I don't know. This family's a disaster though. Why? Because ultimately they care about the blessing from God more than they care about God himself. Guthrie writes, everyone in the family sought the blessing of God without bending the knee to God. But we also see our gracious God at work in the midst of this family and their failures. In spite Isaac's opposition and Rebekah's manipulation, Jacob's deceitful imitation and Esau's indifference, God's word will be accomplished. One of the areas that I struggle most with, most with in my life is trying to earn God's approval. It comes from my own junk, my own background, my own uh, trying to please a dad that, that couldn't be pleased, or at least I felt that way. And so I'm constantly trying to be good enough so that God likes me and possibly loves me. I, I literally, I talk about this all the time, but I had to have nothing to prove tattooed on my chest so I would constantly see it and constantly be reminded. My wife's joked, why didn't you get it backwards so at least in the mirror it would be more like... <laughs> Get a tattoo artist to do something backwards. You're going to end up with something that says no regrets instead of. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the deal. I am Jacob dressed up trying to appear to be something I'm not in front of God to get his blessing. I know I'm not the only one here. Many of us feel like we can never do enough or be enough to get God to like us or, dare I say, love us. But some of us stand before God truly believing he's the blind Isaac, that somehow he doesn't know that we are dressed up. We think we can wear enough goodness to be seen as good, just to put on enough for God to say, well, at least you're better than that person. So I guess I'm kind of obligated to let you in. In both cases, we run smack into Romans chapter 3, which says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're taking notes today. This is our second observation. Jesus is the worthy son. Jesus is the worthy son. See, the goodness of God is that our promised salvation, our value, our worth, our identity, everything that we are is not dependent on us, but Jesus is the hero of the story. So let's look at the verses just before and after Romans 3.23. Romans 3, 21 to 24 says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested to the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I truly believe that one of the greatest hindrances to spiritual growth, to understanding our identity today, is a mistaken desire for the things of God instead of God himself. We want the blessing without the blesser. 
We don't trust God, so we try to do everything in our own strength, in our own way, just to make sure that we get what we need. You know, God, I, I trust you, but it really doesn't seem like you're going to come through in this area. So I'm going to take this one area back because I, I, I'm really the only one that can be trusted with my own self. But this isn't just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, we see a very similar predicament. This is a humanity thing. Jesus tells the stories of two brothers who only want what, what God has, what the Father has. One is up front. He takes his inheritance. He leaves and he wastes his money and his life before returning and repenting to the Father with humble heart. The other brother hides his contempt for his father behind obedience. These stories serve as a foreshadowing of Jesus as the true and better son. He shows us the true and better way to live in blessing and in promise and covenant with God. Jesus lays aside the glory that he's entitled to and he relies on the power and the presence of his father to carry out his father's business. He surrenders to the father's will and timing. He does this because he loves the father as the true and worthy son. And so if you're taking notes today, this is our third and final observation for the day. In Jesus, we become worthy. In Jesus, we become worthy. As we close, I want you to take a look at this passage from the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. It says this, There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And skipping down to verse 14 to 17, it says, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We are the beloved children of God who are followers of Jesus. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ that indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There is no part or portion of our lives we can do better than Jesus. There's no blessing or hope more than the ones that he provides. There's no better timing than Jesus' timing. But just like Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, and Esau, it's hard for us to see and trust what God is actually doing. Why? Because life, that's why. It gets convoluted and painful and we suffer and think somehow that means that God has removed his blessing and promise from us. But in all of this, the answer is actually to do the opposite of what we tend to do. Instead of grabbing control, instead of trying to take things by force, to contrive, to steal, to trick or grab what God has for us, we simply need to be with him. We will never be or do enough, but we don't have to. That's the beauty of the gospel. We simply need to spend time with him at his feet to become an apprentice of Jesus, to learn to live in the promise that our hope lies not in what we do, but who we are because of who God has made us to be. As an apprentice of Jesus, you can stand before him not as Esau and not as Jacob dressed as Esau. But family, we get to see him dressed in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. We see this lived, up in, lived out in baptism. Instead of dressing up, we're actually baptized into Christ's death. Romans 6, 3 to 5 says, Or are you unaware that on all of this, all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be 
in the likeness of his resurrection. Because we're dressed in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus, the Father says, you are my child. I mean you today. Matthew 3.17 applies to you. You are the beloved son and daughter of Jesus as you apprentice him. Beloved son and daughter of the Father as you apprentice Jesus. I want to encourage you to think this week about what that means in your life, that you are absolutely loved by God and you're, you are pleasing to him, not as you might be someday, but as you are right now. But as you do this, I want to give you something practical because the enemy loves to try and mess with our identity, that we are not enough. So I want to give you a little tip to help us tell the voices apart. The Holy Spirit brings conviction in our lives. Conviction says, my dear son or daughter, when you make that choice, when you do that thing you do, that's not what's best for you. I have a better life. Come with me. I want to show you what's better for you. Please let me have that thing. That's conviction. And we know what we're doing or thinking or saying is wrong. We don't have to continue to pay for them because Jesus already paid for it on the cross. But the enemy brings guilt and shame. Guilt and shame is not the same thing as conviction. Guilt and shame never come from Jesus because guilt and shame were nailed to the cross. Guilt and shame says, I can't believe that you as a pastor would do this. I can't believe you as a follower of Jesus. I can't believe you would do that. What kind of horrible person does that? I can't believe that you would think that way or act that way. You better hope no one finds out how jacked up you are. You better act right or act better. Let's show Jesus how sorry you are. And maybe if you show him how repentant you are, it'll be enough that he can love you. That is not from Jesus. This week, as you weigh what it means to be his beloved child, I want to encourage you to embrace the conviction. Embrace that correction. Don't run from it. But don't fall captive to guilt and shame that is not from the Father. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are absolutely incredible. You are good. And Jesus, you have shown us what it means to be the true and worthy son. We thank you that our righteousness is based on you and not the things that we accomplish. Yeah, Father, I know that I personally continue to struggle with that over and over again. So, Father, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to see you for who you really are and us for who we are in you. In the name of Jesus.